I'm Claire. And I'm Natalie. And we are a licensed psychologist and licensed school psychologist and a pediatric occupational therapist. And we are here to talk to you about stories of kids and adolescents who have maybe some struggles with development or disabilities, and also the parents and the caregivers and the teachers and the therapists who love them and work with them. We've divided this podcast up into two parts. So the first part is focused more on stories and experiences that we have and that parents have shared with us about their child um, with special needs. And then the second part, we delve into more details about those experiences and what we would do with them clinically if you want some more information on that. Yep. I think that's it. Goodbye. The following message is brought to you by our lawyers. A Little Cerebral is a podcast documenting a conversation between a psychologist and a pediatric occupational therapist. This is intended as a conversation between two colleagues. We are not providing legal, medical, educational, or any other advice, recommendations, or treatments through this podcast. So as part of our um, interview series with Natalie traveling here, there, and everywhere, I'm doing an interview today with Dr. Niraj Patrawala, and he graduated in 2018 with a PhD in school psychology with an emphasis in executive functioning and traumatic brain injury. Hi. Hello. (laughs) And I mean, in in full disclosure, you and I are friends. Yes. (laughs) We've known (laughs) each other since 2008. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so do you want me to call you by your formal Dr. Niraj Patrawala or do you just call you Raj? Just Raj. Okay. Hey, Raj. All right. So hi. One other thing that I like, I really respect how you're able to define executive functioning in a like a really clear way that I think helps people who don't know much about it understand it. And for that reason, I've had, like, you've come and talked to some of the classes I've taught at UNC. Um, But so I guess my first question would be, how do you define executive functioning? So I've given this some some thought, and I think I'm going to lead in with uh, the actual definition used in the profession, and then we'll kind of break it down in a more fun visual way. Okay. Um, So executive functioning, very generally defined. Uh, It's an umbrella term to uh that refers to the processes involved in goal-directed problem-solving behaviors um you know cognitive mechanisms that allow for the control of behavior beyond basic hardwired drives or purely learned or automatic behaviors um so what does this mean for somebody who doesn't really know uh what ef is um it's very easy to confuse ef with intelligence with iq Mm-hmm. And IQ, uh, you can think about it as a car. Your IQ is the size of your engine. You know, a Honda Accord has a pretty decent engine. It'll get you many places. A Ferrari has a huge engine. So somebody who's very highly intelligent is kind of like a Ferrari engine. And then uh, average intelligence is, you know, something that's not a Ferrari, like a Honda or BMW, something like that. Ford Focus? Executive. Okay. What's that? Ford Focus. Sure. I mean, all of those fall in the average range, right? Okay. So, yeah. Um, but now, this is the difference between IQ and executive functioning. So, your engine is your IQ, if you think of it that way. But your executive functioning are the components inside the car that help you go. Uh, so, your gas pedal, it, you need that to get going. That's your initiation. That's getting started without needing a lot of reminders. 
um, impulse control. That's your brake pedal. You know, you need to be able to stop. Um, you need to be able to be flexible. That's your gearbox. You have to shift gears depending on what the road looks like, depending on how fast you're going, things like that. Um, your mirrors can be your task monitoring. Hey, where have I been? You know, what, how am I doing so far? Um, that's a good way of thinking. That's how I like to think about executive functioning. And that's how I try to explain it to people who've never heard the term before. I love that analogy. I, and I like it because I think it applies. Like you could say that to an adolescent, you could say it to an adult and everybody would understand it. And it, it just yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, given all of that, and I mean, I've talked about on, on here about how, you know, with IQ or cognitive, I, I want to say IQ, not cognitive abilities, because you could even say EF to some extent, that's a cognitive, yeah. Test, right? Yeah. So I'm going to just use the term IQ, even though we call it a cognitive test. I mean, and they are measuring more than intelligence, but so right. IQ, right. Um, I've talked about how, you know, you're kind of born with upper and lower limits, right? Like you're, it's a like you're born with a, with, like you're endowed with here is your IQ and here is how you make the most of it or here is how you don't do anything with it. And a lot of that has to do with deprivation um, for kids in terms of like early years or even just ongoing and um, throughout their development. And some of it has to do with like how stimulated are you, right? And like what, mm -hmm. is, your, what is your environment? Is it safe? Are you getting all of the things you need in terms of um, like just healthy development, right? So yeah. given all of that, um, how would you describe the development of EF or executive functioning throughout life? So that is a very interesting and complicated question. Um, you know, brain development, every, we can look that up, we can talk about that. Um, but EF development sort of differs from that a little bit. The, the common understanding is that your executive functions are kind of associated with your prefrontal cortex. It's the part of your brain that's just behind your forehead. And people think that, you know, people know that that is the last part of your brain to develop because it goes from back to front. Um, but I have some reference material here and I was brushing Ooh, up on some you. of this. <laughs> um, I did not want to make any mistakes. So I wanted to make sure that I had this available. I understand um, the same way. Yeah. Um, so, the nice thing about um, brain development is that, or rather, in terms of EF development, um, you could think about it in terms of, okay, you know, when your prefrontal cortex is fully developed, that's when your EF uh, you know, processes really come online, and that's when you have full um, availability of these to help you do whatever it is that you're trying to do. Uh, but this book that I was referencing earlier, um, and it's pretty interesting because what it tries to talk about is it's not just as simple as, hey, this part of the brain is now fully mature, so that means that your EFs are fully mature. Um, that's not really how it works. Um, the prefrontal can cortex... You, can I stop you for a second, though? Because I think that that's a common thing that is said amongst, you know, psychologists and people who work in education. And I think more and more people are aware now that, you know, you, you, at least from... Um, males, like, you know, mid to upper twenties is when your brain is fully developed, you know, or we say for women early to mid twenties. So it sounds like what you're saying is that that idea that, you know, all of your EF skills are online because now your brain is developed in mid to late or early to late twenties, that that's not true. Is that, is that what you're saying? It's not that it's not true. It's not the best understanding of what the science tells us. 
Um, you know, so this idea of the prefrontal cortex being fully developed, it kind of falls under this modular approach that um, some EF scientists talk about, which is you have this module that does this, you have this module that does this, you have this module that does this. Um, and a better way of thinking about it is in terms of a network. Um, so your prefrontal cortex is connected to many different parts of your brain and they are in different stages of development um, at different points in your lifetime, in your lifespan. Um, so EF starts off at a very young age. Um, however, because of the course of your brain's development and the development of these networks that can be accelerated or decelerated based on your experiences in this world, mm -hmm. your EF development sort of follows that trajectory. Um, yeah. Okay. And so it sounds like another, just to summarize what you're saying is it's not like, okay, now my brain is fully myelinated at, you know, my mid twenties. It's not just that it's, is it fully myelinated? And what do those connections look like? Like, what is that neural circuitry? Is it talking to, are the, is that part of the brain talking and connecting to other parts of the brain? Are there good neural pathways going on? That's kind of, I guess you would say integration, right? Is that happening? Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, so uh, let me see if I can simplify this just a little bit more. So the development of EF, it starts with from a very young age. As soon as an infant is able to make some sort of volitional decision, reaching for an object, trying to get attention from a caregiver, some people would say that there is some sort of EF involved in that initiation yeah. or whatever the case might be. And then when babies learn how to self-soothe, that is the building blocks of self-regulation. So EF starts off from a very young age, and it takes a while for it to become refined, uh, just as other abilities that our brains provide us with. Um, one thing that we have talked about is that the EF is housed in the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain right behind your forehead. Um, and that is the last part of your brain to develop because the brain goes from back to front. Mm -hmm. um, so this idea that males are fully developed around the age of 25, 27, uh, females are fully developed around the age of 23, 25. Um, and since that is the point when your prefrontal cortex is fully developed, that's when your EF is fully developed. That's something that is not entirely, uh, doesn't entirely fit with what we know based on recent research. EF abilities do come online from a very young age. But based on the context and the environment in which your brain is developing, those abilities kind of get accelerated or decelerated over time throughout your lifespan. That was a great answer. And I think that um, it, it was really clear. And I, I think that, you know, obviously sort of brain development has become something that is more mainstream, which is mm -hmm. great because I think it helps people to have empathy. It helps people to think about things in more of a developmental context. On the other hand, there's like details, right? There's details that are incorrect and it's important to correct them when we, you know, have that opportunity. Yeah. Well, it's also one of those things where it's such a massive topic, brain development. It's such a very integrated and complicated issue that uh, having a little bit of information um, can almost lead to having no information because there's so much more that we don't know and we kind of yeah. get stuck in thinking a certain way when uh, the reality is that it's much more complicated than that. I, I get that way when I'm, so when we're talking about like fight or flight and like the um, HPA access, uh, access mm -hmm. I mean, and then thinking about like the polyvagal theory, 
um, which I, I know I'm speaking in gibberish right now for a lot of people, but I want to get to that on another episode. So it's like, you know, a preview of what's to come, but I, that's where I stumble is like that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. I know I'm getting like maybe a detail or two wrong and I really want to make sure I'm correct about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I remember the first time I started really reading about flight or flight and, um, BHB and the limbic system. And one thing I had never considered was the cascade of, uh, the chemical component of that, uh, pathway in your brain. The, 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 the amount of hormones that are released to make the flight or flight reaction happen. Yeah. It's a very complicated thing and it happens so quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, that, yeah. So when we only talk about fight or flight and we don't talk about these other chemicals, it, you're sort of only getting one part of the picture. Yeah. Right. Or even like faint or freeze. I, well, I won't go into mm -hmm. all that, but it's like, that's like a whole different response. Um, that's like more mammalian. Um, yeah. and so I think that's the one that, nope, the other one might be mammalian. See, this is why I don't like, I need to have all my information in front of me before <laughs> I like to talk about stuff. Cause there's a lot of stuff and it's hard to sift through and remember things accurately. Um, yeah. Okay. So we talked about how those develop through life. So one of the things also that I really liked when you talked to my class was um, you talked about component parts of EF. So you were talking about like, okay, so um, time management, right? Like that's a higher level EF skill because that has to be built upon other EF skills that come first. So do you want to talk about that kind of thing? Right. Yeah. So um, before I get into that, one thing we have to understand is EF is still a very poorly understood construct in psychology. Um, it is very prevalent in schools. We all talk about it and it's important to talk about it. But in the literature, there's not that much consensus on a single theory that explains it all. There's like 30 different explanations. I heard that. You know? Like literally there's 30 to 40. I heard that. In yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So some people think about EF as, um, you know, you have one part of your brain, it's the central executive, the conductor, and that's EF. And then other people talk about, no, it's not really like that. It's a collection of all these smaller uh, cognitive processes. Um, the most common thing that people talk about in terms of EF in the schools is they use the brief model, uh, the behavior yeah. rating inventory of executive functioning. Um, and they break down EF in terms of behavioral components and metacognitive components. But like you mentioned, um, something like time management, it falls under more under the metacognitive part and it relies on these other subcomponents, more sort of fundamental components um, that help you be a good time manager. Mm -hmm. So one theory that I used in my dissertation and that seems to make a lot of sense is um, I can submit, uh, I can let you know what the actual um, citation is, but it's, uh, it's called the Unity Diversity Framework. Uh, it's by Miyaki and a bunch of other authors. There's like eight people on this paper. That's okay. We don't um, cite all the authors on this podcast. We just say the first, okay. blah, 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 blah. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fine. So this, what, what seems to make the most sense to me in terms of what are the most foundational components of EF? Um, which of these processes are, are the most foundational? Um, and I refer to the unity diversity framework. And what they talk about is uh, response inhibition, which is impulse control. Um, cognitive flexibility, which is being able to shift, set shifting, and obviously working memory. These three seem to be the most foundational components, um, executive functioning components. Say them um, again for emphasis. Yeah. So the first one they talk about is response inhibition, that's okay. impulse control. Yep. Uh, the next one is cognitive flexibility, that's yep. set shifting, being mentally flexible. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and then the most important one that everybody will talk about is working memory. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. That's really helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. I want to read that article, by the way. That I like. The I'll, I'll I send like. it out. Cool. Thanks. Um, so my phone just, okay, here I am. All right. My phone, like, uh, if I'm not touching my phone, it like goes to sleep and then it shuts down everything I have, like my questions. <laughs> oh, okay. So I, I mean, we can skip this if you want, because you kind of already talked about it, but I was going to say, how do we see these manifest as we develop like preschool, school age, middle school, college beyond? Um, do you feel like we've kind of already answered that or do you want to add more to it? Uh, I could add something to it. Um, so the, a big part of EF, and especially uh, this, this book that I was referencing earlier, okay. um, I was kind of going through some of the chapters. It's, uh, it's called Executive Function in Education by Lynn Meltzer. Oh. Okay. Um, it is a very heady book. They use very sort of um, scientific language. So it's a little tough read, but it's incredible. I mean, it's chock full of very, very interesting information. It's actually a very cool book. I love it. Um, yeah, I kind of want to get it. It has... Yeah, it has updated and refined my understanding of executive function in a very, um, very beneficial way. So, hey, cool. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of how do how does EF show up at these different uh, points in somebody's educational life—preschool, elementary school, middle school, and beyond—we um, mentioned context earlier and the role of environment on EF. Uh, when you are a very young child your parents or your caregivers, they serve as your executive functions because you don't really know any better. Uh, a small child might run into the street, in a, into a busy street and the parent has to be like, oh, no, 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 don't do that. That's your impulse control, but that's not coming from the child, it's coming from the caregiver. Um, and the older you get, you sort of, you know, that, that EF particularly gets strengthened and other ones also get strengthened and then they can do things for themselves. So in a school situation, um, the environment plays a big role again. Um, there are not that many demands placed on a very young child in the educational situation, uh, in the educational setting. Uh, the teacher does a lot for you. The teacher sets the tone, they set the rules, um, and to sort of guide you along the way. As you get older, um, especially beginning in third grade when children are, you know, the, the material that you're learning becomes a little bit more complex. You are expected to become a little bit more independent and start thinking for yourself. Um, uh, developing those critical thinking skills, those analytical um, thinking skills. That's when EF really starts to show up differently uh, in different students. So the more demands are placed on you and the more things that you have to do for yourself, uh, the greater the load you experience on your executive functioning system. So people, students with good EF, and I don't like to say good or bad, but for the sake of simplicity, yeah. people with strong, good EF, they're able to rise up to the challenge and handle that uh, new load on their EF system. AKA and, girls. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in honestly. Many ways. Yeah, honestly. It's in many ways. A lot of times in third grade. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and the students who did not have the strongest system, they start experiencing difficulty. Now think about what happens when you move on from fifth grade to sixth grade. Now you're in middle school. Not only is the educational curriculum becoming more complex and you're expected to do things more on your own independence, so you have to rely on your EF a little bit more, but now there is a whole new social structure and a social environment that you have to navigate. Plus, and that also puts a, sorry, plus more. Like that cascade of hormones. I'm sorry I'm for interrupting you. But exactly. That, like that you were mentioning. 
Yeah. Right. So your brain is also go undergoing development and it's, uh, you know, the, the increased stresses from your environment, educationally, socially, they place a greater load on your executive functioning system. So um, that's when you really start to see, uh, I shouldn't say you start to see, but that's when the challenges become more and more difficult. And as you yeah. progress, they become, you know, as you were expected to be more independent, it becomes a little bit more challenging to navigate that new world. Anecdotally, I get a lot of third graders and sixth graders, especially sixth grade boys, referred to me in my practice. And then I just think back to the schools, like what, I mean, how, when I was doing groups or skill-based groups, like who was I working with? A lot of third mm -hmm. graders. It was, I mean, it was a lot of third graders, third grade boys. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah, it's an important <laughs> transition. Right. It's an important transitional time. Um, third grade, sixth grade, uh, even, you know, ninth grade, 10th grade, high school. Um, my experience is with teaching freshmen in college um, and teaching them just how to navigate college. And you could see the difference in the ones who were sort of ready for the challenge in terms of their whatever EF abilities I could gather just by talking to them. You know, I didn't measure anything, obviously. Um, and the ones who sort of weren't quite ready for that challenge because they weren't fully um, able to handle the transition well compared to their peers. Yeah, I believe that. Um, and that's yeah. like the thing about that with college. And this is why I'm like a huge believer in, you know, if go to a community college or take a couple of years off or take a class or two at a time while you work is that's a huge gamble. Like I just keep thinking, okay, so we're going to have something and roughly it costs $20,000 a year. And we're going to put all of these people who have not yet developed their executive functioning skills in one environment with minimal supervision and like high stakes because it's $20,000 a year. And we're just going to see right. what happens. And then like, let's throw some alcohol in there too. And let's, yeah. just see, let's see how this experiment <laughs> works out. <laughs> and yeah. it, just, it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know why we do that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really funny that, you know, we just mentioned about how the brain is not fully developed until your mid to late 20s, depending on your gender and things like that, and a lot of other um, variables. But then at 17, 18, 19, you're expected to be this self-reliant, functioning individual taking on the challenges of school and a new social environment and, mm -hmm. yeah, alcohol and all kinds of other substances. Um and without really a lot of supervision or responsibility or accountability in many senses. And, and it's no just a recipe training. for, and no skill training. Yeah. Um, and it's a bit of a recipe for disaster for yeah. some people. Some people handle it just fine, and but a lot of students don't. Um, yeah, it's a crazy system. <laughs> well, and it's kind of high stakes because it's like, you know, 20 grand a year, if you, well, at least at CU, right? Like, um. <laughs> it's a very expensive experiment. Yeah. So I kind of feel like instead, maybe we should scaffold those skills. And, and I will say that one thing I've seen when I work with college students um, in my practice of ADHD is when they have a job, they do better. So fewer classes and a job because it almost sets up a structure for them and they're getting all that input they need. Yeah. So, you know, the thing about EF is goal-directed problem-solving behaviors uh, that are not previously learned or automatic. So the more uh, structure you have where you can experience these new uh, these new experiences um, in a sort of a controlled environment, the better you're going to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, having that discipline and that structure, even if it's external, um, does wonders for people compared to just sort of being left to your own devices and go figure it out, you know? Yeah. I just, that's why I think jobs are actually pretty important for people. 
with um, ADHD. I know some people, their, their guests might be, okay, I don't want you to have the distraction of a job, you know, really want you to focus. Well, they can't, right? Like th- they cannot focus generally on their own for as many hours at a time as it requires for a full load of classes. So yeah. I mean, before it was kind of a problem before there was healthcare reform because, you know, like you had to be full time to have right. healthcare. Um, and now I feel like, okay, now we have a little more breathing room, which is so good. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Were you going to say something? Well, I was just going to say, I think, you know, um, having a structured day with classes that are, you know, these specific times, I always have class at nine o'clock, 11 o'clock and one o'clock. And then at four o'clock I go to my work. Um, when you have those anchor points in your day, um, you don't have to do a lot of sort of figuring out what am I going to do with my time? Um, and having that structured, it really helps especially people with ADHD, students with ADHD, because you don't, there's not as much of a load on your brain to figure out, okay, what do I do next? Right. You know what you have to do next. Yeah. Right. Because if you think about it, what that's requiring is mental flexibility and working memory. Okay. Yeah. I have to yeah. thing. That's right. Okay. Wait, what am I supposed to do? But what's that other alternative? Wait, what was that thing I was just thinking about? And so it's like, you know, you have to be able to have pretty good functioning working memory and mental flexibility in order to make everything successful without those anchor points or that structure. So that's, that's a really good, um, that's a really good example. Okay. So um, my next question is, so we know that we see EF difficulties in certain neurodevelopmental disorders, right? And so what might a profile, I mean, and, and I know this is very generalized, but if, what would a profile look like for somebody with ASD? So autism spectrum disorder versus ADHD versus fetal alcohol or brain injury. What would be some differences just generally? Yeah. So there are some differences. Um, In autism, when you look at the building blocks of that disorder, how, you know, the fundamental components of that disorder, um, a lot of it has to do with difficulty with flexibility. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, uh, difficulty being able to shift from one topic to another, difficulty seeing a different point of view or looking at the same problem from a different angle. Um, in a very basic, fundamental way, that is a feature, um, a characteristic of autism spectrum disorder. Um, however, what we find is, what research has found, is that we don't have, we don't see as much evidence of difficulties in impulse control or working memory a lot of students with autism spectrum who are on the spectrum, uh, they are of typical uh, intelligence. You know, it's, it's, there's a very big difference between um, cognitive impairments and autism spectrum disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, so impulse control is not that heavily impacted. However, uh, mental flexibility, planning, some of the more metacognitive things do seem to be highly impacted in that particular population. Now, I was going to add, I was going to add from my experience anecdotally, so not based on research, emotional regulation, I would add. Yeah. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Um, Now, emotional regulation seems to sort of show up in all of these um, four that we've mentioned. Yeah. Um, And it kind of forms the the basis for all this that we're talking about anyway. But yeah, the difference between autism and something like ADHD is ADHD is characterized by difficulty with impulse control. Um, and that's a very big distinction between that and uh, people who are on the autism spectrum. Um, so for ADHD particularly, you definitely see problems with impulse control. Now, obviously, it depends on the type of ADHD you have. 
um, if you have an attentive type or hyperactive type or combined type. Mm -hmm. um, but impulse control seems to be a big um, difficulty for students and, and individuals with ADHD. You also have difficulty with um, attention, which then creates problems with working memory. Um, you know, if you're not paying attention to the information, it's not even getting registered in a way that you can hold on to the information and then manipulate it, right. um, which is what working memory is. Um, so that is a pretty hallmark feature in terms of EF um, deficits in that particular disorder. And now things get a little fuzzy with fetal alcohol and traumatic brain injury. Can I back up a second though, just because? Yes. Um, so that's if you only have ADHD or only have ASD. But as we know, a lot of people with autism also have ADHD. So then it just, I'm just putting that out there for people who wouldn't know that, that, you know, you might. Yeah. We haven't even, both. yeah. We, yeah. We haven't even talked about comorbidity with any of this yeah. yet. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. And things get a little, you know, things get a little fuzzy with TBI and fetal alcohol syndrome or fetal alcohol exposure. Um, a lot of times it looks like ADHD, but then when we try to intervene in the way that we would with somebody with ADHD, um, we don't see the results that we would expect. Um, and part of that has to do with, you know, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome, as the name suggests, um, is exposure to alcohol when you are in the womb. Um, and that has, uh, that interrupts your brain development. It has a negative impact on your brain development from a very, very young age. Um, and depending on the degree of exposure and how, um, you know, what sort of impact it has had on your brain development, your EF profile is going to look different. Um, so you're, it, it is very likely that you would probably see difficulty with impulse control and uh, working memory, some of the foundational ones that we've talked about, uh, cognitive flexibility, and then the combined effect of those on your, the bigger executive functions, the metacognitive ones like planning and organization and task monitoring and things of that nature. Um, and the similar thing happens with traumatic brain injury, depending on the severity of the injury, depending on sort of the location of the injury, uh, depending on the type of the injury, your executive functioning profile can look different. Uh, so for example, somebody who uh, has a, a mild traumatic brain injury, what people often call a concussion, um, that profile is going to look different from somebody who had a um, car accident or somebody who was shaken as a baby right. because the injury is different. Um, so the EF profile is going to be a little bit different. Um, and I was actually going to add with fetal alcohol syndrome, one thing. So I, I mean, I don't, I didn't read this in like, you know, a book or a peer reviewed article, but I remember when I was studying for the EPPP to become a licensed psychologist, um, one of the, one of the things that they were talking about or one, like a fun fact that I, not fun, but a fun fact, so to speak, that I learned is that, um, fetal alcohol syndrome is the leading cause of intellectual disability. Oh, so that's the triple B flashcard. So I could be wrong, but I remember being, oh, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to make perfect sense. I mean, I think anything that's going to impact your brain development from such a young age, um, very, not easily, but, you know, it's likely that it's going to cause um, a whole host of uh, deficits, including um, cognitive impairment. Um, yeah. yeah. Right. Or like maybe, maybe like your uh, um, perceptual reasoning is okay, right? Or maybe your 
verbal abilities are okay, but then your processing speed is really like, which isn't, we're not talking about that. Like we would talk about working memory, which we would also measure with a cog test, but like maybe your processing speed is really slow, really impacted. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We don't seem to see that. Uh, and that's sort of where it gets a little fuzzy. You know, it looks like ADHD, but it is not ADHD. We don't see the, the incredible slowing of processing speed in ADHD as much as we would with fetal alcohol syndrome or traumatic brain injury. And that creates a whole different set of educational challenges for teachers and caregivers and parents. Um, because, you know, it, it can be a bit frustrating. The student is able to learn. However, it takes them a very long time. And the amount of time it takes them to encode the information, maybe things are falling off the plate, you know, before it gets fully encoded. Um, and that looks very different from a student who is having impulse control difficulties or working memory difficulties. And it's kind of confusing to what do, what do I do about this? You know, how do I help this student? Yeah. And just so that people know, like processing speed is like how quickly you're thinking, essentially, like if you and then not just thinking, but then coming up with a response. So like, I mean, it's it's a silly example, but the best example I can give is like in Zootopia, the sloth. Do you remember the sloth? <laughs> like, and, and like he takes a while and like the bunny is already on to like the next question. But, you know, if you think about it, somebody who's taking a little bit to answer or really thinking about something, taking a bit to really process your question, that could look like they're not paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, so I was going to go off on a whole different tangent. I won't do that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, it's, that's, the, that's the challenging thing of, um, I mean, it's challenging for educators. Obviously, you have to keep in mind that this is way more challenging for the students themselves. Yeah. Um, and then constantly getting in trouble for not paying attention, for being, you know, being told that you're off task when really you're trying your best to process the information. Um, that That's just, I can only imagine how difficult that might be for somebody um, yeah. who's going through that. And how it, how it, like, I mean, you're a kid, right? And so you're still developing your self-concept. So how it makes you think about yourself too. And then, you know, that expectation that you don't do well with X, Y, or Z. So then, you know, it sort of becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy based on how people respond to you, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's yeah, that changes the trajectory of your um of how things are going to look and how things are going to go for you um yeah. in the future. Yeah. That that stuff makes me pretty sad. Like that that's yeah. me within like the field of education. I just that's the stuff where I feel sad for kids. And you know, a lot of the people I see in my um practice are pretty solidly middle class or upper middle class. Um I'm thinking about the kids who, you know, are living in poverty and maybe have a single parent who's working two jobs who, or maybe doesn't even know about this kind of stuff or doesn't even know the first place to look for it, or maybe has a learning disability themselves and couldn't, the reading would be too hard to find out about this. Yeah. And those kids don't really have anybody advocating for them, you know? Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> it's just one risk factor on top of another, on top of another, on top of another. And you know, it's very difficult to be resilient. I mean, resilience is fantastic and people still, there's some examples of people making it out of that, but um, it's very difficult and exhausting to be resilient in the face of so many risk factors. Right. It's not just about your brain development. It's about your environment. It's about who's taking care of you and what their lives look like. And I mean, can you imagine what that's like for a small child who's seven years old? Like, oh my gosh, you know. No, it would just be like, you want to put your hands up to your ears and go, ah, like it's too much. Right. I mean, that's what, that's yeah. kind of like what I picture as an adult, 
so then, you know, what is a kid who is not, you know, fully developed? How, how are they experiencing that? Um, yeah. Okay. Is there anything else you want to add to our interview? Um, I, <laughs> I do want to add one thing. Um, you know, it, it's very easy to talk about executive functioning in the context of education and the context of these specific disorders. Uh, but one thing we have to realize is just think about your own personal experience and how it feels when you feel good, a uh, nice summer day like today, it's sunshine. Um, and then on a day when you wake up with a severe head cold and you have a headache and you're tired and just think about how it maybe takes a second longer for you to process information. Maybe you don't really have the patience that you used to have, uh, that you would have on a regular day when you're feeling okay. Um, you know, you might be a bit more forgetful in that moment when you're not feeling very good. That's all EF that we're talking about. Um, and that's just from being sick. It's not even having a disorder. We're not even talking about that. Um, so, you know, your executive functioning is a bit of a finicky, fragile, very powerful, but fragile, um, ability, set of abilities in your brain and things like anxiety, depression, especially the longer they go on, um, and uh, all other types of um, challenges that we face, stress, just regular stress of life, they can all impact our executive functioning. Um, and, you know, the longer those challenges stick around and the longer that you're under stress, that's kind of is the recipe for um, greater deficits in the long run for EF. So it's not just about ADHD. It's not just about autism. It's not just about chronic brain injury. This happens, uh, and we have these, you know, um, uh, the modulations in our executive functioning um, on a daily basis based on how we feel and based on how much stress we're under. So that's how, like, that's a very interesting way and an easy way to understand just how important these abilities are mm -hmm. um, to success in whatever we're trying to do, and also uh, just how easily they're sort of thrown offline. And of course. Yeah. And, and Dr. Peg Dawson, um, Peg Dawson, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Peg Dawson, Dr. Peg Dawson. Um, like, so I've done a bunch of her professional development stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, one of the things she talks about and has people do is in their, in her, she has like smart, but scattered. She has like a series for like school age, then adolescents and then adults. And she has an inventory at the beginning of the, of the um, book. And so what the idea is that if you're a parent, you're doing your inventory and a kid is doing theirs and you're looking at that match of your own like profile of strengths and weaknesses versus theirs. Mm -hmm. I mean, granted, it's not like something standardized, like a brief or something, but sure, it's, it's a nice, like sort of so informational. Yeah. yeah. It's so informational. And so, and she actually has people do that in her trainings where you do like your own profile and then you look at how that's going to impact you through the day. And it just kind of gets you thinking about like, what are my relative strengths and weaknesses versus like my partner versus my kids versus my boss, you know? And I think that's a really yeah. cool thing to do. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that helps you sort of figure out strategies to, you know, it's like, okay, I know that it's difficult for me to um, I'll just talk about my own personal experience. I struggle with impulse control sometimes, uh, you know, or uh, initiation, getting started on things without needing a million reminders. And I have to set timers on my phone for everything. Literally, if you look at my alarms, um, I have a timer for everything. You know, hey, this is when you take your medication. Hey, this is when you have to do this. Hey, this is when you have to do this. Don't forget to call this person. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't know that if I didn't sort of um, over time realize that, yeah, you know, I'm not just going to be able to think about this in the moment when I need to do it. Um, I need this extra little uh, help 
and thank God for smartphones. They're so, yeah, so easy and helpful. <laughs> I know smartphones have really like have really changed. Um, like just how we can manage executive function, yeah. even teach it, right? Like this is what a clean room is supposed to look like. Let me take a picture of your bed. It looks like this. Let me take a picture of this yeah. like this. And then you have this reference. So it's not like I forgot something or, Ooh, I didn't notice that. I mean, you can like go back and ch- I mean, just as a parent, like that's just an example. Yeah. Of my son. Uh, Cause that's yeah, it, it just, sorry, God. No, it just, it just, you know, it reduces the load on your executive functioning yeah. system. So it's just, Oh, did I forget something? What am I supposed to do? What's the next step? You just have it right away. Pull out your phone, yeah. you know? So instead yeah. of remembering four things, all you have to do is remember to pull out your phone and then you have yeah. the checklist in front of you or the picture right. in front of you. And that really reduces that load on working memory too, if you think about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great. Well, it was so nice to talk to you. Thank you. This was It was very good to talk to you. Fun. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it was good. Um, okay. Well, so long. Farewell. I bid you. Adios. 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 <laughs> okay. Until Good. next time. Until next time. Okay. Goodbye. Yes. Bye. All right. Bye, Claire. Bye.